And good morning. If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 5. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 5. The Word of God says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering uh, myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Amen for the glorious imagery that you paint here of the throne room of God and of the worth of the Lamb of God. We pray today for wisdom and discernment to be able to communicate the word rightly and well and for the power of your Spirit to open our hearts and our minds that we may see the glory of our God. We pray to be a people not complacent about worship, not indifferent to the glorious proclamations made here about the worth of Christ to be worshipped. Let us see and, and, and feel and perceive this in our hearts and souls today. I pray that we, through the preaching of your word, would become a people who look in hope towards all that is, is brought to us by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that we would live to be a people who worship you in everything that we say and do. 
be honored and glorified in the preaching of your word today. We rest in your strength and power alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we came to this new section of the Revelation last week, I told you that chapters 4 and 5 are to be taken together as one scene. The the chapter divisions sort of uh, break that up in a way that is artificial. But this is one scene, and what this scene does is it just sets the stage for everything that follows so that we understand everything that is coming forward in the, in the revelation. It's rooted in and flowing out from the throne and the one who is seated on that throne, the throne of God. Now, chapter 4, it got us started in that journey, just setting the stage for us by focusing us on this all-powerful, all-glorious Yahweh God who is seated on the throne. Now, as we come today to chapter 5, the scene hasn't changed. This is still the very same scene. But the focus does shift a little, and it just zeroes in on a particular person. Of course, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He's the slaughtered yet standing, crucified yet risen Lamb of God. And he's none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is both the lion and the lamb. He is the king and the redeemer and the judge. And he's worthy of worship. That's the argument that this text is going to make today. We're not going to get ahead of ourselves, though, so we're going to start from the beginning at verse 1 here uh, with the scroll, and this is where your notes begin. There's nothing for you to write initially, but I've got this there for you. Verse 1, and before I read, let me just remind you, I think I assume a lot of times that you remember the things that we've gone over in the past, but John is writing here signifying the things that were around the corner for John and those uh, readers in the seven churches. Some of the things that you read here, they're not meant to be taken literally. He is showing us symbols. For example, here in verse 1, there's a scroll on the right hand of God. God doesn't have a right hand. right? We don't take that literally. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Christ put on a body. But God doesn't have a spirit. doesn't have a right hand. This is signifying something. We know that this is God on the throne. It talks about him having a right hand. We don't actually anticipate that there will be a hand from this invisible God on the throne. Again, there's a lamb, there's a lion, there's a root. We don't anticipate to get to heaven one day and see a lamb. We don't anticipate seeing a lion. We don't anticipate seeing this little group-like creature who's the root of David walking around. Right? We we don't anticipate these things. That's a, a woodenly literal interpretation. Some will insist that you read the Revelation in that way, and it's wrong. These are symbols telling us something about Christ, telling us something about who God is and why he's worthy. So just keep those things in mind as we read this. Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John sees on, your, your translation ESV says in, the word is on, on the hand of God, which It's important because this is an open hand. God is holding it out. He wants his people to come. He wants this scroll to be open and read. This is important. He's not clinging to this thing. It's on the hand of God. There's a scroll. The question for us is, what is the scroll? What is represented by the scroll that we see here? Now, there are many, many different opinions about what exactly is written on the scroll, what is represented by the scroll. And I've listed out for you in your notes about a dozen 
of the most popular theories on, on what this scroll is and what it represents. You'll notice there that the first five on the list have something to do with Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the unfolding revelation of God in general, not just written Scripture, but also prophecies that might be uh, given, the whole Bible, the revelation, a portion of the revelation. These are all theories that have been proposed about what this scroll represents. Another view is this is the book of life, the Lamb's book of life that is opened to show who the elect are and who are redeemed. Some see this as a covenant lawsuit. Certainly, Revelation itself is a covenant lawsuit against apostate Israel. Some would include in that, though, the indictments that are going to be levied against Rome. Some see this as a divorce certificate. I personally don't agree with that. I don't see that God would ever divorce Israel. Certainly, he will judge uh, those sinners in Israel, but we ourselves are grafted into the Abrahamic promises. God is not putting away Israel and replacing her with another bride, but still, that is a particular view that some hold. Of course, we look back to Daniel chapter 7, and we see this coronation scene as Christ comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and he receives the kingdom. So some see this as the, the title deed of creation or the title deed to the kingdom of God that is handed over to Christ. Still others see uh, this is the, the secret decrees and the purposes of God that are awaiting fulfillment. All of these are views that are held by various theologians for, for different reasons. Each view has its own merits. Some of them, or most of them, eventually run into problems if you carry them through and continue on interpreting. I'm not going to take the time today to walk through and eliminate all of the views that I think are wrong. I'm just going to tell you straight what I think, um, tell you why I think it. If you choose to go another route in your interpretation, that's fine, but I gotta, we're just going to save time, and, and I'm going to tell you what I think this is. So for your notes here, my view the way that I interpret the scroll, what I, what I think it represents, is number one on your list there, the Old Testament. The Old Testament goes there into those three blanks. The Old Testament. I think the scroll signifies everything that God said to his people in the Old Testament. All of the promises, the judgments, the uh, the redemption, we're looking at everything that God has unfolded about the coming Messiah. It's all there in the scroll. So this is the oldest view on record. Uh, we have early church fathers writing about this as early as 500. And, and as they do that, they're referencing earlier fathers, some citing Augustine and others who were preaching from and holding this particular view. Of course, oldest, and this is also the majority view among theologians, doesn't necessarily make it right. Uh, but, but it does give some credibility to it. This is, this is not something new and novel that we're coming up with today. If I had to choose an alternative, though, about what is written on this scroll, I'd, I would say number three on your list, that it's all of Scripture. Uh, in any case, and I printed this for you in your notes, just in light of the, uh, the various connection points that this passage shares with the Old Testament, and if, look up here for a second. Think back to your notes last week. I gave you a list of different connection points that Revelation 4 and 5 have with different things in the Old Testament. I, I gave you Isaiah 6 and uh, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Ezekiel 1 and 2. Those are different connection points. In light of those connection points, I believe it is important that we see the contents of this scroll as God's written revelation, the Holy Scripture. And if I could just explain that to you here. I've printed a text of one of those connections for you in your notes. Ezekiel chapter 2, starting with verse 9, and I've printed there through uh, 3, 4. 
So let's just read it together and see what we find. Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 9, the word of God says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find there. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So it's clear, Ezekiel chapter 2, that the scroll of the book and you've got to write something here the scroll of the book is the message the message is the word that goes in the blank is the message of god to his people through ezekiel now we're talking about a scroll of a book i've also got this printed for you in your notes here the book is understood to be the larger unfolding canon of the Old Testament Scripture, which is still being added to in the days of Ezekiel, right? Men are still writing out the Word of God. Uh, volumes are still being added. By the time Ezekiel writes his, that's going to be added uh, to uh, the, the Bible. Other minor prophets are still have to write their, their prophecies from God. Those will be added to the canon of Scripture. But the book, the scroll of the book, right, a book, I believe is the larger canon of scripture and the scroll we're talking about a volume of the book the, the scroll that Ezekiel is commanded here to eat the, the scroll that God said is my word this is my word for for my people this is the book of Ezekiel that is going to be added to that canon of scripture so this scroll of the book is holy scripture that's really not debatable as we look back into the Old Testament text now I've printed for you there in your notes as well just a list of the Old Testament canon. This is how the Jews viewed the Old Testament. They considered it as one large canon, one large book with several different volumes. So by the time we come to the end of the canon, you've got those 22 individual scrolls. Now those 22 books of the Old Testament correspond to our 39 books. But you can see there how some of those are combined in the different scrolls. This is Josephus' list here of the canon as it was in Jesus' day. So that's how the Jews view uh, the scriptures. They're seeing individual scrolls, scrolls of the book. That's how Jews see the Old Testament text. So again, for your notes here, the individual scroll spoken of in Ezekiel 2 and 3 is the book of Ezekiel. It's the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel goes there in the blank. The book from which that scroll is taken is the Old Testament as a whole. So Ezekiel's scroll is Holy Scripture. Now, I want you to notice the correspondence between how Ezekiel's scroll is described and the way in which John describes his scroll. And I've printed these verses in parallel there for you in your notes. Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10. Behold, a scroll of a book, and it had writing on the front and on the back. Revelation 5, 1. Then I saw a scroll written within and on the back. You see those parallel ideas? So those, that point right there of identification in connection with 
all of the other points of connection that we talked about from Ezekiel 1 and 2 and Revelation 4 and 5, I think demands that we see these two things in similar ways. Right, the scroll of the book in Ezekiel is Holy Scripture. And so this scroll on the hand of God in the Revelation, I believe, is also Scripture. That's why I come down where I do from that list that I gave you there earlier in your notes. Now, how much of God's Word is actually written on this scroll? I don't know. Right? I can't say that with absolute authority. But I will say this. Later on in the Revelation, we're going to encounter this little scroll. Right? John himself is going to be given a little scroll. He's going to be told, just like Ezekiel, just like Jeremiah in his volume, eat this scroll and then go speak to my people. We believe that little scroll is the revelation, right? It's a different word. It's a little scroll. This here, though, it's a biblion. It's a book. It's the word from which we get the word Bible. So I'm inclined to say that this is all of the Old Testament. If you'll remember, all of the Old Testament is effectively completed and sealed up 400 years before the time of Christ. There's no scripture being added to the text of Holy Scripture for, for 400 years. But here comes Christ. He's on the scene He's ascending back to glory, effectively breaking these seals. And what do we happen? At, what happens after the ascension? We start getting new scripture added to the text. We get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the New Testament, the epistles, finally ending with the revelation and the sealing up of that canon once again with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There's no new written revelation coming. So I think this is important for us to see this at the end of the day as the scripture. Again, though. I'm not going to quibble over the details, how much of this is written there. Um, the major point that I want you to take away, this is God's word. This is God's word. So now we come to the question, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Here's the question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So questions like this one. They're not out of the ordinary for uh, these throne room scenes. We could think back to Isaiah chapter 6, and he's there, and he sees uh, God high and lifted up. It's, a, it's an incredible scene that's unfolded for us. There he's listening in as the Trinity is having its discussion among itself, and God is asking, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Right? There's that question that's just announced in the heavens. Now, for Isaiah, the, the answer is, is simple. It's just a matter of availability. Who's available to go take our message to sinful Israel? And there's Isaiah. Here am I, Lord. Send me, right? It's, it's a simple question of availability. Here, though, in the Revelation, this question involves the issue of worthiness. Who is worthy? That's how the question is worded here. So the further question for us is, why is worthiness even an issue? Why is worthiness an issue for who is going to break these seals and open this scroll? Well, let's see. This scroll, I've printed this for you in your notes, I believe is the Old Testament. In it is written all of the promises of God. All the messianic promises, all of the kingdom promises, the land promises, uh, the judgment promises, all the mercy promises, the promises of redemption for God's people. All of it is in this scroll and sealed up. And then don't forget, I know this is a lot to take in, but this is huge. Don't forget the connections that we painted for you last week between Daniel chapter 7 and this here. Right? Same scene is unfolding. We go back to Daniel. 
we see the, the ascension of Christ. Judgment is about to happen. Daniel's looking forward to it happening in the latter days. But as we come to the revelation, John is sitting down to write, this is happening for him, right? This is a present reality. It's unfolding even, even as he writes. So we have those connections. I wrote the text, I think, for you of Daniel 7, 9 and 10. If not, just listen to me as I read it. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, that's the God on the throne, Revelation 4 and 5. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Does it sound like something that we've just read? The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is a courtroom scene. This does give credence back to the fact that there is a, this is a covenant lawsuit that's about to be unfolded. Israel has broken God's covenant. They have failed to recognize, by and large, Christ as the Messiah. Judgment is coming. So judgment is about to take place. Books are opened. And I would argue that the books that are opened here in Daniel chapter 7 is the Scripture. Some will go to Daniel 7 and say, these are, these are the scrolls, the books that record the works of men. And men are going to be judged according to their works. Later on in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2, if you want to write it down. Daniel is trying to consider the Babylonian captivity. And he says, I was reading the books. I understood by the books that the captivity is going to be 70 years, right? Same word he's using here. And by that he means the scripture. I was reading Jeremiah, he tells us specifically, and I understood from the prophet that this captivity is going to last 70 years. So Daniel's looking, the captivity is almost over. That's the hope that he has in Daniel chapter 9. Well, when, when an author writes the same word without qualification, I tend to think that he's meaning the same thing. So if he means the scripture in chapter 9, I think he means the scripture here. Besides, his judgment is, is had this is the standard by which all men are judged. It is the word of God. Men will not be judged in the final analysis by their cultural standards. You will not be judged by what you think is right, by what the culture around you said was right. Even if you did everything according to the laws of the United States, that does not mean that you are justified before a holy God. The books are opened, the scriptures, and we are judged in the final day according to what is written in God's word. It's the standard. So books are open. This is a judgment scene. Judgment is about to happen. The one then who reads from the books and judges mankind must be worthy to execute that judgment in righteousness. That's what's happening in Daniel. It's the same thing that's going down here in Revelation chapter 5. So this is not a question like, is there anybody here who can read this? It's not availability like it was with Isaiah. This is a question of, for your notes, this is a question of who fulfills. Fulfills is the word that goes there in the blank. Who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament? That's what this question of worth is about. Who is perfectly holy and can justly execute the judgments that are written in this book? 
who is mighty to establish this everlasting and ever-increasing kingdom of God, who can prevail to satisfy the just demands of the holy, holy, holy God, who can expiate the sins of God's people, who can redeem them as a holy people unto their God and make them into a kingdom of priests before him, who is worthy of these things, who meets all of the things that are spoken of about this one in the Old Testament. Furthermore, we think about this scroll being on the open hand of God upon the throne. And if you'll think back to the sermon from last week, God upon the throne dwells in an approachable holiness. He is the holy, holy, holy God. We talked about even the living creatures they have six wings. They, they use two of these wings to shield. These are holy creatures, mighty creatures, to shield their faces from the awesomeness of his glory. They use two of the other wings to shield their feet because even though these are perfect beings, holy beings, they're still unworthy to be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God who is on the throne. His glory is excelling. So even if you could find somebody in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to actually read the contents of that scroll, how would they get close enough to God to get it? These living creatures, mightiest things God ever made, are still shielding in themselves from his glory. Who is worthy to approach this throne. You can see this is a monumental problem. All of heaven is longing for the fulfillment of the things that are written in the scroll. All of heaven is longing for the redemption of God's people. All of heaven is longing for the judgment of God poured out. Remember, these saints, they're being persecuted. They're living under the thumb of Rome. They're being, many of them are dying just for the name of Christ. And so they are crying out for justice. Everybody wants this scroll open, but nobody's worthy. So the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scrolls? Somebody please stand up. But nobody answers. Heaven is silent. And so the search is made of all creation. Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody in all of creation, that is no created being, is found who is worthy. Again, not even these holy angels, not even these living creatures, as mighty and holy as they are, still their might and their holiness is derived from the one who made them, right? Nothing in creation is worthy to approach the throne or worthy to open this scroll. And so the natural response we get from the apostle and prophet John, verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Right? We understand his distress, especially if this scroll is what I think it is. And it's all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Redemption can't come if this scroll is not open. Judgment cannot come if the scroll is not open. We don't get to new heavens and new earth and all of the promises fulfilled if this scroll is not opened. If no one is found who is worthy, for your notes there, if no one is found who is worthy, how then will these promises be realized? 
realized is the word that goes in the blank. If no one is found to be worthy, how will these promises be realized? And truly, what a hell we would be in if there was not a verse 5 here, right? But praise God, one who is worthy stands up. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I'll print for you a couple of, of questions here, some things for you to write. Why was this one who is worthy not found when the first search was made? It's a, it's a rational question, I think. And the answer... Because the search was made of creation. Because the search was made of creation. And the one who stands here is worthy. He is not a created being. Hallelujah. The one who stands here as worthy is not a created being. He is very God of very God by whom all things were made. Right? Second question then, how then can the one who stands to fulfill, how can this one be the one who stands to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies since, according to the Old Testament, Messiah has to be a man, right? That's the word that goes in the blank there. Messiah has to be a man. We think back to the Old Testament, and of course, Messiah from Genesis, right? He's the seed of the woman. That's human. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? He's going to be uh, sitting on the throne of his father David. I mean, he descends from David, right? This is a legitimate question. How is he going to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies because the Messiah must be a man? And I just wrote the answer there for you in your notes. Because this one who stands here is worthy is God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is not created, but he did put on human flesh and suffer in our place. And that's what this passage proceeds to show. Just listen to what the elder says of the one who stands. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is a prophecy right out of Genesis 49. I think I wrote the the reference there for you in your notes it's a messianic prophecy that's very well known to the jewish people they would have easily recognized this and in it messiah is shown to be physically that's the word that goes in the blank physically descended from judah so he's a man right the prophecy is going to go on and talk about other things that this messiah is he's he's a mighty everlasting ruler he's a judge over all people this is an incredible prophecy you should go back and read it we did preach from it as we came through genesis but the elder looks and he says this one is here the one you've been looking for since the beginning he's the one who's standing up behold the lion of the tribe of judah and the elder doesn't stop there he goes on this one is also the root of david so this idea of the root of david it comes from isaiah 11 i also wrote that there for you in your notes just the reference And it's related to a lot of other passages in the Old Testament where the Messiah is shown to be somebody who descends from David, right? 
He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. From this stump of Jesse, a shoot is going to come forth, right? He's going to descend from David. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Judah. Messiah's coming from Judah. There's David. He's the son of Judah, great-grandson of Judah. And from him is this Christ, right? This is tracking with everything that the Jews are anticipating about the coming Messiah. However, this elder doesn't speak of the Messiah in terms of his descent, right? He doesn't speak of him as coming from David. He says he's the root of David. Now, if you know anything about trees and plants, you know that roots have to come before trees, right? Seed, root, sprout, tree comes later. You don't have this tree. You don't have this branch. You don't have this shoot if you don't have the roots. Jesus confronted this issue with the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you guys, you know that Messiah descends from David, but why is it that David calls him Lord? And, and the scribes, the Pharisees, they don't know how to answer that. Because for the Jews, a son can never be greater than a father. Father is always greater. Abraham is the greatest. He goes all back. He is the father of the Jewish nation. There's, there's no way in their minds that Messiah could be David's Lord. Isaiah 11 had always perplexed the Jews for that reason. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to be a branch, but he's, he's also the root. What, is, what does this mean? Your notes here. The argument is clear. While the one who is standing is indeed a descendant of David, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is also the root and the ground and the source and the origin of David. In other words, he is divine. He is divine. That is the argument made by this title, the root of David. He's man, lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's God, the root of David. He's David's maker and creator, right? Now, Isaiah 11 is going to go on and unpack a lot of other things that will be in the minds of these readers. Things like Messiah's humble beginnings there in Bethlehem, a Messiah having the, the fullness of the Spirit upon him. You'll see these seven eyes later, right? They're the Holy Spirit that's on Christ. The fact that he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom that's going to take over the nations. The fact that this Messiah is going to convert not just Israel, but also the nations to himself. All of that's going to be coming to the minds of these, these readers in the first century as they think about this root of David who is standing up. He fulfills all of this. He's worthy to fill this office. Verse 6, and this is really interesting. Got several things here. Let's, let's just read the verse first. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So there is a lot to see here. Uh, first of all, this is in your notes. Uh, the words between and among in the original Greek text are the very same word. Now, I do appreciate the King James for this because it actually uses the same translation for these words. It'll say in the midst and in the midst, but it's the exact same word. Now, you say, what's the big deal, right? Uh, in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the, the, the living creatures and in the midst of the elders. That just means Jesus is in the center of the room, right? Well, no, not according to the way this word is used in the Greek language. This means, and here's something for you to write here. This means that he is seen somehow 
rising both from the throne, right, which is the, the throne is the word that goes in the blank there, that's in, that, that's in the midst of the throne and in the midst of those living creatures. So it's dead center on the throne, but also rising from among the elders who represent the redeemed. Elders goes in the other blank. So, so just get this. He's seen rising. However you want to explain this. It's not literal. It's symbolic. So just take it as for what it is. He's rising at the same time from the throne, but also from the midst of the elders, from the midst of the redeemed. In other words, this lion and the lamb who is standing, he's identifying with his father on the throne, but at the same time identifying with his brothers whom he has redeemed and sanctified. The argument again, he is God and man. 100% God, uncreated is Christ, but also identifying with those whom he sanctifies. It's just an incredible argument made by the text. It's Christological. It tells us who he is. He's not an ordinary man, certainly not created. He's not just God who, who sort of floated around on the earth. He had flesh and blood. He felt what we feel. He, he went through every temptation and trial, and he overcame victoriously. He is the lion and the lamb who suffers for us. Verse 2. Or rather, second point here. Sorry. <laughs> He appears as a lamb slaughtered. That's Christ crucified. So he died. Died is the word that goes in the blank. The lamb slaughtered. He's Christ crucified. So he died. And yet he's standing. Right? You don't stand unless you're alive. So alive goes in the next blank. He is Christ resurrected. He is alive forevermore. And don't miss the fact that this lion is the lamb. And the lamb is the lion. Behold the lion! But he's a lamb, right? He's both. He is both this triumphant king and victorious Lord, but he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a powerful, powerful image. Third thing here in this verse. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this... This lamb has complete authority. Authority. Horns in the scripture always signify some kind of authority. He has seven of them. That's complete authority. That's what the horn signifies. And the lamb both has the spirit on him and he sends the spirit out into all the world. Just further signifying that he's God. God sends forth the spirit. The spirit of God is on him but he's also the one who sends the Spirit out into the world. Now, I said this earlier, no created being could dare approach this all-consuming glory of God upon the throne. But this lamb, being himself God, he goes straight up to the throne. He is not intimidated by the glory that is also his. Verse 7, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on that throne. Everything else in creation is shielding itself from the immense glory. This is Christ's glory also. He walks right up to the throne and takes this scroll. And what happens next is just it's the obvious, absolute worship. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
For your notes, all of heaven erupts in the worship of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who's triumphed over all, who stands as the fulfillment of all of God's promises, who alone stands worthy, worthy to convey the promised blessing and to execute the decreed judgments. It's good stuff. Verses 9 through 14. I'm running short on time. We're not going to unpack all of that today but they show all of heaven and if you'll go back and you compare this in your own time four and five all of heaven which had been worshiping god upon the throne is now singing a new song and they're praising christ the lamb the son of god for he as god is also worthy of all worship that's the argument being made here by the text christ is worthy of worship because of who he is and if, and if you go and you look into these, these verses 9 through 14, Christ is also, also worthy of worship because of what he does. He's conquered. He's made us a kingdom uh, and priest to our God. By his blood, we've been redeemed. He is triumphant. So he's worthy of worship because of who he is, and he's worthy of worship because of what he's done for us. He's worthy of worship because he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is worthy to execute these judgments it is an incredible sight all of heaven is gloriously reveling in the glory of this lamb who is triumphant now what does it mean for us see here in chapter 5 this son of god is worthy he's uncreated he's very god of very god but he's also the incarnate god who put on human flesh he's He's the promised lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the, the, the promised Davidic king who's also the root of David, the creator of David. He's conquered. He's presented himself in the fullness of human flesh, faced down sin, taken our sin on himself, put it to death on his cross. He's prevailed over that sin. He's the conquering king. He's uniquely positioned to judge all of heaven and earth for their transgressions and sins, for their rebellion against God. But what does this mean for these Christians here in these seven churches? And what does it mean for us? What does it compel them to do? I've got two things for you in general to take away from this. I've written those things out for you in your notes, but there's nothing there for you to write, so just, just listen here. The first thing that this gives is hope. Amen. It gives us hope. We're going to think about this in a little bit, but, but we see that this world is broken. Yeah. That it is broken by sin. Everybody knows this. Everybody feels this in the depths of our soul. These first century Christians, like I said earlier, they were under the thumb of Rome. Remember the letters of the seven churches? Many of these people had lost their, their jobs and their livelihoods because they refused to burn incense to the emperor at Rome. They, res, they refused to bow down to the gods of the pagan culture around them. And so they're ostracized. Many of them are starving. Some will be arrested and put to death for none, nothing less than the, the name of Jesus Christ. But they won't recant. But they look around them and they see this world is broken. It's overcome by sin. Christians down through the centuries, from, from this time, the first century, to today, are being persecuted and put to death for the sake of the name of Christ. They live in wicked, rebellious cultures. They see sin rampant all around them. They know this world is broken. 
Even we ourselves, we live in a relatively free country. We're able to gather together today and there's no threat of somebody coming in here with machine guns, right? And taking away our, our right of worship at this point. But we do look on the horizon and see that possibility of, of persecution rising for us. We see the day coming where we, I might be arrested for preaching the truth of God's word because it goes against the standard of what God has said and the standard by which the world will be judged. And when I'm in, in prison, Corey's going to get up. He's going to preach the word. He's going to be jailed. Dad's going to get up. He's going to preach. Wayne's going to preach. You guys got to stand up one by one. We're going to end up in prison. Because the culture has a standard, and it is clearly opposite of the word, word of God. We see the brokenness of this culture, the, the, the darkness of these shadows of evil, right? It just seems to grow ever darker. Creation is groaning for deliverance. Like Corey said earlier, we are longing to see new creation. That's what these first century Christians are longing for. Here in this passage, their hope stands up. Jesus Christ the righteous stands up. And he guarantees them final victory. Judgment is coming. It seems like the world is getting away with all kinds of sin. I think Roe v. v. Wade just celebrated its, what anniversary? I don't know, but it's decades Millions and millions and millions of children have been killed since abortion became the law of our land. And you can look at that and you can say, those kids are never going to see justice. This says differently. There is a day of reckoning coming. There is a king on the throne. He will not let those children's death be unanswered. He will not let the, the blood of the martyrs go unanswered. Justice is coming. These Christians for a century who've, who've seen their, their husbands killed, their wives killed, their children torn apart in the Colosseum can look at this and say justice is coming from the king on the throne. This is their hope. They can look and say redemption is provided for a sinful people such as us. Our king identifies with us and rises up from among us stands forth as our redeemer he is our hope Amen. we're just as vile as the world around who is rebelling against god today the only reason that we are sitting here in righteousness glorying in god is because of his grace he is our hope and this king is reigning the king is on the throne today. The kingdom of God is present today. The everlasting kingdom, whether you see it or not, is expanding over all the earth. 200 years after the writing of this revelation, Christianity will have permeated the entire known world. There will be Christians in every nation under heaven. And it's still happening today. Are there still wicked governments? Yeah. All over the world. But there are believers in those countries who are allied to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The kingdom is expanding. The kingdom is growing. There are more believers today than there have ever been. There are more true worshipers of God than there have ever been. Don't look at elections in the United States. Don't look at persecution in China, Iraq, and Iran and think the enemy is winning. The king is on the throne. His kingdom is expanding. All things are being made new. We're, we're looking for a new creation's consummation. But even right now, hearts are being made new. And you're the evidence of it. 
You've been changed. You've been transformed. New creation is happening every time the gospel is proclaimed and, and souls confess Christ as their Savior. Every day you dive into the Word of God and you are further sanctified. New creation is happening. We're looking for the full consummation of new heavens and a new earth. But even now, Christ is making all things new as he is seated upon the throne. Christ stands here as our hope. And so the challenge that I wrote for you there in your notes, please start living like a people who have hope. Because that, most of Christianity is not. Yeah. I'm on social media. Leading up to the election, since the election, from Christendom, you would think that all of Christianity has its hope in whether or not the Republican Party wins an election. Yep. But I'm not my president. That's the kind of thing that this person says whose hope is rooted in this world. Amen. Listen. Biden, Trump, vile men. The United States of America, not a sacred thing. If the United States should be destroyed tomorrow and become a socialist government, who cares? All of the kingdoms of the world, you read the text today, are bowing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This nation is not destined to remain. His kingdom is. And you need to live like it. You need to live like Christ is your hope. It's disheartening for me as I look around at Christendom and I see so many people living as if this world is our hope. It's embarrassing when you do it. We don't preach from this pulpit, none of us, that the United States government is our hope. We don't preach that Donald Trump is our hope. We don't preach that Joe Biden is our hope. We don't preach that the Republican Party is our hope. But you wouldn't know that if I looked at some of your Facebook pages. I need you to be challenged by this. Don't live as a people whose hope is in this world. Live as a people whose hope is in Christ. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It will outlast every vile president who will ever come to power. It will outlast the United States. It will outlast all of the kingdoms of the world. And all of these, these vile men... They're part of all creation that is bowing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and confessing his greatness. Live like a people who have that hope. The world needs to see a people whose hope is in Christ, not in how things are turning out politically. It's okay to grieve the fact that babies are being murdered. Grieve that. It's okay to grieve that the sexual ethic of this country is utterly godless. It's okay to grieve that, that homes are being torn apart and divorce is, an, is a normative thing in our culture. Grieve that! But don't live as if your life is defined by what the world is doing. Amen. Live, living out that Christ is on the throne, that he is our hope. Final thing, worship. That's the key, that's the heart and the soul of chapters 4 and 5 is worship. God on the throne is worthy of worship. And the Lamb of God is worthy of worship. And just by connection, the Spirit of God is before the throne. The Spirit of God is on the Lamb. The Spirit is also being worshipped. What we're seeing unfold here in the Revelation is this beautiful trinity of worship. 
God the Father, the Lamb, the Son of God, the Spirit who is on the Son and before the Father. It's a trinity of worship. And it defines the people of God. Now, every one of us worships something. That's just what, that's, that's what we do. We're called here to worship Christ. We're called here to worship God. We're called to make everything that we do in life be an expression of what we believe. You want to be a good dad? Be a good dad unto the glory of God. You want to be a good mom? Be a good mom unto the glory of God. Let that be an expression of worship, a proclamation of the gospel to your children. Sadly, what we see many times in this culture from Christians is people worshiping all kinds of things except God. You worship your job. You worship your bank account. You worship governments and parties. You worship all sorts of things. Even safety has, is an idol of the Western world. There are churches, churches that have not met together for worship, like I said last week, in, in almost 10 months. Why? Safety. Safety is this idol of the, the American church. It's one thing to try to deal with a pandemic and wisdom. we got an outbreak. We'll, we'll put service off for a couple of weeks. But just, to just forego that thing that we are called and commanded to do, it's an idol. Can I tell you that from the beginning, Jesus says Christianity is not safe? All over the world, people are meeting today and have met today knowing that it could be their last day because they're worshiping Christ. And it's not a pandemic threatening them. It's other people who are threatening to tank their lives. But they're going to go to church anyway. So many Christians in this country prize safety. And so we'll sit at homes in our safety, afraid to come out, in our safe little spaces, afraid to come out, afraid to worship God, afraid to obey Christ and do the thing that we are commanded to do. And I need you to understand as a people, corporate worship is essential to who we are. It's not just a tag on. It's not just one of the things that we do until we get to glory. And, you know, it's essential. It is essential that we come together on the Lord's Day and hear the word of God proclaimed. It is essential that we come together and that we challenge each other in the way that we are living. It's essential that we come together and we confess truths like we do in our creed and in our songs, in the prayers. It's, it's, it's imperative that we come together and we observe this. This table is important. Amen. You can't. You can't enjoy the table of the Lord with brothers and sisters over a live stream. Worship is important for us. It's what we're going to do for all of eternity. Make sure your life is devoted to the worship of God. Live as if your hope is in Christ because it is. Live out the worship of God. That's what this, this text here is challenging those early Christians to do and is still challenging you and I to do it today. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the glory of God that is displayed for us in the word. For Jesus Christ, the righteous, who stands up as worthy to bring our redemption, to, to form us into a kingdom and priests and to our God, to fulfill all of the promises that you ever made to us, who stands forth to justly execute judgment upon the wicked and the rebellious. God, we glory in Christ today. We glory in the plan of redemption that, that is yours from before the foundation of the world. We, we glory in the Spirit of God who's given to us. And we pray for the grace 
to live out the hope that is Christ Jesus. To live our lives in worship of the great King. We are not of this world and we want to be noticeably different. We are asking you, Father, pour out grace in our hearts and in our lives that we might follow you with pure and holy hearts. We bless your name in Jesus' name.